what at what point are you finding people are approaching you to say, hey, John, I want you to come in and look at my practice. Tell me how much it's worth. Um, and then when should they be doing that? So, mm-hmm. so, you know, are they doing it too late in general? Are they doing it too early? You know, what sort of assumptions? I guess, when are people kind of approaching you with that idea of valuing a practice and, and, and that sort yeah. of thing? I think the funny thing is, is that it, um, I probably have gotten more panic requests since COVID hit. Um, but even, even before, I mean, you know, I guess if I look at the entire universe of practice valuations, the time that people request things is really very dependent on the type of business person that individual is. Um, and I think that the individual who is business savvy um, starts much earlier in their career, understanding that this is a practice asset that they can sell many times over. And I'll explain that in a little bit um, versus somebody who wakes up one day and says, oh my God, I've got to sell my practice, right? It's time to retire or, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it's just like during COVID, right? Here's the other thing that I've noticed quite a bit. And I think this will kind of blend well into the discussion of practice values. When COVID first hit and practices were shut down in mid-March to April, May, whatever it may be, based upon the state and what your governor decided, two different, definitely two different groups of, I mean, the, the profession was definitely bifurcated. Uh, I, you two had two big lumps and maybe some people in the middle. I had a big lump of people who were absolutely not prepared, had less than two weeks of cash on hand rather than having a savings plan or six months reserve, you know, something like that, um, that people were panicked. And, and a lot of those practices just shut down. And they were individuals that were later in life and had, you know, maybe retirement was, quote unquote, two to three years down the road. But just like COVID has accelerated many things, um, it also accelerated their exit point out of their practice. So they shut down and they haven't reopened. They have not reopened. Holy cow. I had... Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. John Rampakis, and it's really the first part of a two-part conversation this week and next week that, that we had. This week we talked about practice valuations and practice appraisals, which John has become busier and busier doing. He's done them all, all these years, but, but also busier now with COVID. And we talked about pre-COVID valuation and post-COVID valuation and private equity valuation. So it was a really fun conversation. I learned a lot. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends and support those who support us. I have to admit that with eight kids, it's a real challenge for my wife and I to minimize our environmental footprint. You should see the corner of our driveway every Tuesday morning when recycling and trash is picked up. One of the things I can control is who I partner with. Sustainability is something that matters to us and to our patients, and Cooper Vision is committed to it. From executives to plant employees at Cooper Vision, their commitment to sustainable practices is clear. Check out the show links to see how others are incorporating their commitment to sustainabilities in their practice. Or ten. Do you just finish early, or you just you just work all day? Um, so my typical day goes from, let's say, four a.m. till one p.m. Pacific time, and then I take off a couple of hours every day to go work out. So one to three fifteen or so, I'm at the gym and riding um, a bike, and then. Um, 
work pretty much from 3.30 till 6.30 and, uh, and try not to do work in the evenings. Yeah. Unless I'm doing a webinar or something like that. So you're kind of used to this because it's, um, you know, one of the things I think that's hard is, so I, I've been, I cut back on my clinic days to three days a week uh, during COVID. And I haven't, I haven't ramped that back up since our associate wanted it to be in the office more. So, so she took right. over one of my days. And, um, but one of the things I think that's hard is when you do work from home, it's very hard to shut things off. Well, you know, the, the, so I, I've worked from home now for 21 years, right? Almost. And, um, so longer than I was in clinical practice, I practiced for 15, 16 years, something like that. And then, um, so the, you're right. The, the difficult part is, is, I mean, the great thing is your commute is very short, but the bad thing is, is you never leave the office. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I it really enjoy, I've always been a morning person. I'm a four hour, five hour a night sleeper. And so for me, I write, you know, for so many publications, I love the, uh, part in the morning. It's quiet. I can bang out an article in 30 minutes, you know, um, mm. from start to finish, you know, and I don't have writer's block and stuff like that. It's just uh, no, no phones. Yeah. Yeah. You have so. to, that's what I've learned is I have to not, um, I have to not attend to other things. If I want to sit down and, and write or record or um, do, do a presentation, uh, like, a, like create a new presentation, I have right. to, I have to, completely ignore email, completely ignore texts, all that kind of stuff has to go away. And sometimes if I don't actually put it on my schedule, like just like we did, okay, conversation with John or, yep. you know, doing this, then it doesn't get done. Have you been good at the, about that all, the whole I'm time? Very, or? I'm very disciplined. I'm, um, yeah, I have a very, I mean, if you looked at my schedule, everything is like uh, color coded, right? So I can glance at my schedule. I know what a telephone call, a Zoom meeting, a uh, a deadline, a speaking engagement, whatever it may be, everything is color coded. So I can see my uh, schedule at a glance and know exactly what my day is like. Um, but I've always been really, really disciplined in treating my, when I walk into my office at home, I'm at work. I mean, I get, I laugh because people have commented to me over the, this past year as everybody else started working from home. They go, we always notice like you're always dressed well, you know, and I go, well, I'm at work. And they go, well, but you're at home. I go, no, I'm at work. I've been at work, right? I mean, it's not, it's not something that, um, I don't know, I just crack up. I take it just like I would anything else, right? I don't, uh, I don't know. It's just how I've done things. Yeah, no, I think it's important. I, I have a, so on Thursdays, I have a business meeting and, and I, it's part of the stuff I like to do is, is I get up. You know, I, I'm usually, I work out in the morning, like really early. And, um, and then that sort of sets my whole day. And then I'll come home and, and take a shower, run the kids where, you know, my oldest daughter just started high school this year. So I'll usually be running her to school. And then, right. um, and then I'm sort of settled and set and starting to, to, to work and do things. And, and, but the whole, the whole idea is if it were the weekend, um, I would, I'd just have kind of a, a t-shirt whatever. But like on, I do think it's important on Thursdays and Fridays, I actually put a nice shirt on. I put slacks right. on just because I'm kind of in the mode of, of yeah. doing stuff. Well, the thing I have to be really disciplined about, I mean, at any given point in time, I'm probably doing work for seven to 12 companies, 13 companies. 
So if I've got projects going on with deadlines, I have to allocate so much time because my time could get very easily taken up with just telephone calls, random emails that come in. I mean, I have like just this morning, um, and I should, I, I do get up and exercise. I forgot to say, I do two a day rides. Oh, you do? So ride for 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the afternoon. And then I lift every day. Um, you know, it's the only way to offset gravity. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be 61, true. Next, 61 next month, you know, and wow. it's like, uh, you know, it's just a number, but, you know, you have to be very active at being able to combat it, right? You have to be able to go out and say, I could be, have a 61 inch waist and that's the only thing about me that's 61, or I could, <laughs> you know, fight it and, and do the best I can. Um, but, uh, you know, I, this morning I had like seven emails that came in from a review of optometry column that I wrote and, you know, people just having questions about how to do different things. And, you know, they all expect a response immediately. And I try very hard, like with all of my columns that I write for, um, my, I have a, I have a 48 hour deadline on responding to somebody. And, um, oftentimes I'll call people rather than writing back to them. And they're just blown away that that's what I do is they go, but you're the guy in the magazine. And I go, <laughs> just an ordinary guy. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm just trying to help you. So a telephone call can help us instead of doing 15 emails back and forth, we can probably get it solved in about 10 minutes, yeah. you know? And I, I, you know, I, um, I just think that it's a, I'm an old school, old fashioned guy that just believes in really good communication. That's very transparent. Um, I'm not looking for accolades or anything like that. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I just want people to have the right information. So that way they can conduct their businesses properly. They can be safe. And, and if the only legacy I ever leave, Chris, is that somebody says, wow, you know, he helped my practice. That's yeah. good enough for me. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. So, so we'll kind of segue right into it because that's really what you've been a, a lot more, as we talked a couple weeks ago, you were telling me, you know, there, there's been sort of an uptick in some of your, your practice valuation requests. And, yeah. um, and so I thought it would be really good to sort of in our two part series, really talk about uh, first would be practice valuations. So sort of sure. how, what, at what point are you finding people are approaching you to say, Hey, John, I want you to come in and look at my practice. Tell me how much it's worth. Um, and then when should they be doing that? So, mm -hmm. so, you know, are they doing it too late in general? Are they doing it too early? You know, what sort of assumptions, I guess, when are people kind of approaching you with that idea of valuing a practice and, and, and that sort yeah. of thing? I think the funny thing is, is that it, um, I probably have gotten more panic requests since COVID hit. Um, but even even before, I mean, you know, I guess if I look at the entire universe of practice valuations, the time that people request things is really very dependent on the type of business person that individual is. Um, and I think that the individual who is business savvy um, starts much earlier in their career, understanding that this is a practice asset that they can sell many times over. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, versus somebody who wakes up one day and says, oh my God, I've got to sell my practice, right? It's time to retire or, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it's just like during COVID, right? Here's the other thing that I've noticed quite a bit. And I think this will kind of blend well into the discussion of practice values. When COVID first hit and practices were shut down in mid-March to April, May, whatever it may be based upon the state and what your governor decided, 
two different, definitely two different groups of, I mean, the, the profession was definitely bifurcated. Uh, I, you two had two big lumps and maybe some people in the middle. I had a big lump of people who were absolutely not prepared, had less than two weeks of cash on hand rather than having a savings plan or six months reserve, you know, something like that. Um, that people were panicked and, and a lot of those practices just shut down. And they were individuals that were later in life and had, you know, maybe retirement was quote unquote two to three years down the road. But just like COVID has accelerated, accelerated many things, um, it also accelerated their exit point out so, of their practice. So they shut down and they haven't reopened. They have not reopened. Holy cow. I had, I probably had a number, a lot of practices that said, I just can't make it through this, you know, even with PPP and everything like that. Mentally, they didn't have the organization. Mentally, they didn't have the tenacity. Mentally, they didn't have a game plan and they never knew how to execute. And they probably lived their entire business life like that, hmm. right? And I, from check to check to check to check, right? And, um, do you think, you know, sorry, John, to interrupt, do you think that they, they were, that at least they had some savings? I mean, they could, they were about ready to retire in a few years. Maybe it wasn't ideal, but they, they still be okay. Are they so. going to be, are they going to be in corporate locations working for somebody else trying to do fill-in? I hope so, Chris. I don't know. You know, it's, it's very funny. Um, you know, there's a lot of data out there and I know, I know averages are misleading and all of that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but you look a lot of the data that the Federal Reserve has put out. Federal Reserve have put out data uh, just like as recently as 2018, saying 40% of the U.S. population, if faced with a $400 expense that was unexpected, they would have to sell or borrow something, or sell something or borrow money in order to face that emergency expense. The average 65-year-old, average, quote unquote has less than $10,000 in assets at age 65. I mean, I, I look at these numbers and I say, that can't be, that just can't be. But again, I'm not exposed to the entire macro world of the US population. I mean, you know, you and I deal in a very select segment of, yeah. of things, you know, and uh, I think all of us as optometrists, I think we're very blessed in having a great profession and, and all of that sort of thing. But individuals are still individuals. So as bifurcated as it was, the individuals who came out of COVID very well and who have recovered and are doing probably above plan where they were are individuals that use that downtime. And so they already had reserves on hand because they were good planners and executors because they just knew that I needed six to nine months worth of cash on hand. And I always keep that no matter what, right? So when this hit, they said, okay, instead of panicking, we can retain all of our employees. I can still use PPP or emergency funds if I need to. But they used that downtime to strategize and employ tactics on how they were going to reorganize more efficiently and more effectively. And then when they reopened or re, you know, emerged into the economy again, boy, it was like you know, putting the gas pedal to the floor because these people were just executors. Mm -hmm. And so I see a vast difference in um, you know, who came out of COVID well. And then you've got this lump in the middle that says, yeah, I'm doing okay, but maybe I'm only 75% back right now. Uh, maybe I'm 80%. I don't know. Maybe I'm not even tracking where I'm at. Mm. We're doing okay and I'm holding my own and you know, we seem to be busy. You know? And um, that in itself you know, affects a lot of psyche and, and, and has, you know, 
probably affect a lot of people in saying, maybe I want to sell, maybe I need to look at private equity, maybe I need to look at some of the other entities that are out there on uh, being able to consolidate our practices. So I don't have this hiccup or anything like that in the future. Yeah. So, you know, so let me ask a question. My, my impression is that the, that the, the group that you mentioned the first time, they sort of have all their stuff together. They're ready to figure out ways to accelerate their plans after something hits that makes them change. Right. Uh, My impression is that that group um, probably doesn't sell their practice, or maybe they sell in in, uh, numerous times over their practice lifetime, but likely they're not going to probably want to just dump it off to a private equity firm unless they had maybe some other incentives to do so. And then, or, or potential ownership, and then, um, and then the last group that that wasn't prepared at all, they're probably just looking for anybody to pay anything for them to get something out of their practice. What is sort of the buckets? How many? What percentage of doctors kind of fall in each bucket in your in your estimation? Mm, I'd say so in the in the bottom half. So I guess I'd say pre COVID. Pre-COVID, I'd have maybe it was an 80-20 rule of 80 people being prepared and having a strategic game plan to um, sell their practice that they would at least approach me and have a year or two prior to doing something that we could say, how do we want to strategize this? And then 20% would wake up and say, hey, I need to sell my practice. Why? Well, I'm, I'm getting, I'm old and I want to sell or I'm just ready to change or whatever, Right. Um, I'd say that um, post-COVID, that probably is a 60-40 um, deal. So 40% are, are now on the low end saying, uh-oh, something happened and I'm trying to get something out of my practice. And I've got 60% are saying, hey, this was a wake-up call. I better have a good game plan to be able to have some sort of succession plan or an exit plan on doing things. And I really think that Um, You know, I like to call practice transitions a succession plan in what they're doing, because what you have, remember your clinic, your office, isn't always identified by you as as a professional. And I think that, you know, one of the major mistakes that people make is they have this identity of themselves as being the identity of their practice. And they may be identified in that in their community and things like that, but that doesn't bode very well for resale value, right? So if I'm John Rampakis OD, and that's the name of my practice, and if I go to sell that to Chris Wolf, Chris Wolf is going to say, well, I can't call it John Rampakis OD, mm-hmm. but yet that's what the reputation has been built on. So the minute that John Rampakis OD is no longer there and Chris Wolf OD is there, there is no transfer of value at all for that. But if it was, you know, you know, any town, you know, optometric clinic or any town eye clinic that has a separate identity in the marketplace. And now I just simply have a succession plan on who the next owner or provider is within there. Now we can, you know, do a nice smooth transition with some nice overlap and then an exit. And, you know, that retains its value very well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's always been my contention that those individuals who plan well um, will take the time to really uh, do their due diligence on how they want to sell, when they want to sell, have identified what they're selling, and um, start probably five to eight years in advance of the actual transaction, right? Hmm. Um, If I had to say, you know, if somebody asked me, what's your dream? You know, if somebody said, I really have to plan well, and if you said, what's the ideal way to do things? I'd say, you know, listen, if you're a practice owner, probably sometime in your mid to late 30s, 
you're going to start thinking about selling your first chunk somewhere in your early 40s. Okay, so you're going to give yourself time to find an associate, to build up your patient volume, to groom your practice, to become highly profitable on a net basis, right? So that'll take a couple of years to implement, right? Because, you know, how long do you, you know, how many associates do you have, Chris? We have one. Yeah, one. So, I, so my dad's a partner still. I'm, I'm a partner and then we have an associate. Great. You know, and so when you found that associate, it wasn't, you know, it, I, I, I don't know anything. I should sure. disclose. I don't know anything about your situation, no, right? No, that's fine. But it's not always love at first sight, right? I mean, it's kind of like you start to date and you kind of go, oh, I like this person. That's really kind of nice. And then you finally decide, okay, I like him enough to, you know, have a contractual relationship and let's see how it works. And then we reevaluate milestones and those types of things happen. Um, but there's so many dynamics in that because at the time that you do it, you want to make sure that that's somebody who also has an interest in being able to have an equity interest in that practice over time. Because now you're dealing with, um, you know, generational issues, you're dealing with gender issues, you're dealing with all sorts of other types of intangible factors that now say, well, is that really going to be a successor? Right. I've got practices that I'm dealing with right now. And I'm, you know, I'm in the middle, I should say, right now, of about 10 different appraisals, 10 different practice transaction deals uh, that are going on right now in my life. And in some of those situations, we've got, let's say I've got a practice owner who has two associates. One associate has no interest at all. And they've been there the longest, right? Mm. They've been there like 12 years, 13 years. They have no interest whatsoever in being an equity partner. Yet the younger person who's been there about seven years has the interest in being an equity partner. So now you're dealing with, am I hurting somebody's feelings? Mm. Why is somebody else? Who's going to be the senior OD? How can this younger person be my boss? You know, I mean, yeah. all of the dynamics that go into those things, yeah. right? I mean, to be very honest with you, the appraisal and calculating the value of the practice is the easiest part of it all, right? That's mm. just very mechanical finance, pretty straightforward, very transparent type of a process. It's all the intangibles when you're trying to put a deal together, um, whether the selling individual is staying in the practice or whether they're transitioning out. Um, it's all of those dynamics that come into play um, that are really the either the fuel for the deal or the obstacle for the deal, mm -hmm. right? as they come into play. Yeah. Do you think that, um, so if, if you take that scenario um, and you take the, let's say six, we'll pick six years, you know, so six years, I, I'm 39 years old right now. Um, and, and uh, so let's say 45 is my number. And I was going to say, well, 45, I was going to, we're going to bring in another, uh, we, we might have another associate, but we're going to bring in another, another partner, one other equity partner. Um, then what happens? So then would I also start to plan again at 45 for the 51 time we're going to bring in another partner? So you're yeah. talking about reselling multiple times. So explain yeah. that process to me, because I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, practices change over time, right? And people get, first of all, I'll say this, people get compensation and ownership <laughs> confused all the Correct. time, right? Yes. So let's talk only about ownership for a moment, right? So what I would counsel you is you're 39 years old, you have to decide when is going to be your exit point right now, right? Doesn't have to be exact, but you might say, you know, John, I decide that I'm going to practice until 65. Okay. 
So now I've got effectively 15 years, right, between, you know, age 40 and age 65 that I've got, or 25, 25 years, years, sorry, yep. that, have, that I've got to start working with, right? So how much, you know, how many times do you want to sell? How many associates do you think you're going to have? How many times do you want to sell? And at what rate do you want to sell? So those are the variables. So I come back to you and I say, okay, Chris, so if we're going to sell our first chunk at age 45, how much do you want to sell? Let's, pre- let's just presume for your situation, you own 100% right now and your mm-hmm. dad's not a, a partner. You want to sell 25% because now I can say between 45 and 65, that's 20 years, I can sell a quarter right? Every five years and I'll be in great shape, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I can work that out. And by the time I'm 65, I'm selling my last chunk. I'll be, you know, 75% owner at age 50. I'll be, you know, 50% owner at 55, you know, and so on and so right. on, right? And so that's something that I sit down and I plan with somebody. I say, so let's take a look at what you want your exit plan to be because your practice is probably the biggest financial transaction you will ever do in your career. It's not your home anymore. It's probably your practice for most people, right? And so it takes planning to be able to do that because just like you work with a financial planner who probably manages your assets to some degree and says, by the time you hit 70, here's how much you need to contribute every year. And this is the return that I'm going to try to get you. And here's our goal. Here's what we're going to hit. Very similar to what I do when I work with somebody on that perspective. I say, so tell me what you want to achieve, because if you tell me what your endpoint looks like, we can design any kind of plan to help you get there. Hmm. But if I don't know what you want, I can't do anything. I can give you suggestions, but ultimately you're the one that has to make the decision because it's your life. It's your practice. I'm just there to help you organize it, plan it, milestone it, and execute it, right? Yeah. And, right. and that's the way we go. So, you know, at each successive uh, equity transition point, your practice theoretically is going to be worth more because you're going to have that growth in between those junction points, right? And this is a problem um, that I always have communicating to the younger associates, right, who are buying in. They say, but wait a second, wait a second, I'm paying more and I'm contributing to that growth. And I say, once again, don't confuse ownership with compensation. If your compensation package is structured appropriately, you have benefited in getting paid for that growth along the way. That's what's giving you the ability to be able to afford that bigger asset. Because at each point in time, remember, we're calculating a fair market value for that practice as if it was being sold to anybody, right? There's not a um, you know, I don't, I don't favor when I do an appraisal, I don't favor a buyer and I don't favor a seller, right? I approach every single appraisal. Like I have to face it in a court of law where a judge is asking me, describe your methods, show me your process. How were the calculations done? How did you arrive at a value? And if I can't testify and say, listen, your honor, this is exactly what I did. Here's our industry standard methods. Here's how I forecasted net cash flow. Here's the application of what I did with that. And here's how I arrived at that value. It's not worth anything, right? So I I do have I do have buyers and sellers that come to me and say, hey, can you tweak the price down? Can you do this? Mm -hmm. I said, no, I can't as an appraiser, but you can certainly as a seller 
honor the value that I say, or you can say, thank you so much. I decided I'm going to ask more for my practice, or this younger associate has been very, very good. I'd like to reward them by reducing the offering price. You know, that's the seller's decision. But I, as an appraiser, I have to be totally objective. I can't favor one party over the other. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, so then, you know, if you look at that growth over, you know, the, the periods of time that we've talked about would be five years. Um, then, so let's actually, I want to, I want to break that down a little bit more because I think it gets to the heart of kind of communicating to both the seller and the buyer and the, the difference between ownership and equity, because honestly, until private equity actually sort of came around, it was hard for me to grasp, but it was hard to me to wrap my mind around the difference between being an owner and, and getting my ownership portion mm-hmm. and then being right. a, an employee. Once private right. equity, once I wrapped my mind around private equity, it became a lot more clear and only because private equity was talking about EBITDA and multiples, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. Um, so then kind of walk me through that process of, of, helping other people understand that when you're talking to them, if that's a barrier, especially for the younger doctor, but even the older doctor, if they've been paying themselves, you know, as a, as a employee, but they've been paying themselves as an employee with all of their ownership. Right. Right. Well, so let's take a practice. that's doing a million dollars a year, just so we can work in round numbers, I guess Uh the, the way that I tend to look at it is this. So let's say I'm like you, right. You're working three days a week. And so you have a compensation package that's based upon production, right? And, and I encourage most people to do that. And, you know, so you can have a base salary against production. So, you know, you, you take home, because you're only there three days a week, out of the entire practice, let's say you sal- salary yourself 200000 bucks a year. That's what you salary yourself. And then um, your production maybe takes you to two fifty or whatever, Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you have another associate in there that's in there, let's say, um, five days a week, right? And you structure their basic compensation at 175, but they're making 300,000 a year because of their production excess on doing things. So um, although my numbers won't work, that's too high for right, a for million, a million dollar, dollar practice. practice. Yeah. Right. But it, you know, nonetheless, you know, you're making less on salary. They're making more in, in, in their salary, right? Their compensation. Right. But at the end of the year, you have, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in profit, and you decide that you're going to take a draw because you have a hundred percent ownership. You're going to go ahead and say, "I want to go ahead and take, you know, hundred and fifty thousand. I'm going to leave fifty thousand in the practice to add to our savings and cash forecasting, and I'm going to take another hundred and fifty. So now your compensation went from that two hundred, you know, up to three fifty, right? And you know, so that's how you know, it's done. So, you know, compensation, what you get paid and how you structure what you get paid based upon what you do is completely different in your uh, ability to share in the net profits after the practice is paid all expenses for a given calendar period. Um, Now, remember what also goes along with that, because people always look at it and they say, oh my God, well, you know, the owner took out this much money and they're getting paid this. And I say, yes, but Tell me what happens if you had the codes for COVID. Did you have exposure as an employee? Did you have to worry about paying all these employees? Did you have exposure to your accounts receivable or anything else? You had no risk. So, you know, people always tend to forget that, you know, ownership is a finely balanced uh, 
type of a, a position between risk and benefit. It's not always all benefit. I mean, knock on wood, you know, we our profession has been pretty solid, pretty steady for a long time um, because we play such a good role in the healthcare community. But there is risk with ownership and things, you know, close every day. There's events that happen that are, you know, catastrophic health issues, things like that. You know, I've been involved in a number of estates where the doctors passed away um, and there's not been a succession plan in place. I mean, those are those are hard situations. Divorces are very difficult. I'm the only I'm one of the only guys that I'm aware of in the industry that does appraisals and testimony uh, as expert witness in a divorce case, because, you know, uh, it's a marital asset in in some situations. And so, you know, it's <laughs> it's a it's a funny thing. Right. Oh, man. You know, yeah, and that's yeah, it. those I mean, are cases. Those are cases, Chris, too, where I get the individual, uh, you know, where they're trying to get equity in the situation where they come and say, "You need to value the practice really low." <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I, I can't, you know, yeah, I, you know, I'm stuck. I, I have to do exactly what the process is, you know, and, yeah. and my ethics and morals don't allow me to do that, anyways. But it's a funny thing. Yeah, no, but it's interesting because it's a peek behind the curtain that nobody really thinks about, uh, you know, when they're when they have a practice if. God forbid something like that happens, then when you value the practice, how much comes into play on that package that you would pay the quote unquote employee, the, like the compensation as an employee or the compensation for the work you're doing? How much, how much does that come into the value of that practice um, in total? Or is it just that last amount that's at the, at the end of the year and you're pulling yeah. back? That's all that matters. Yeah, I don't really take their compensation plans into when I'm doing an appraisal. I don't take compensation plans into effect. Um, what I do do is that when a younger associate who has never been an owner now has, um, you know, comes in as an owner, I always talk about to both parties about how their compensation packages are structured. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time, I should back up a stage. Yeah. I spend a lot of time and oftentimes why things take uh, more time is, you know, we have to think about tax considerations too when a practice yeah. is being sold. Um, there's still many individuals out there that are a sole proprietor, right? They just file a Schedule C on their 1040 and they're not incorporated or anything like that. Mm. So when it comes time to what are they selling, they're only selling assets, right? That's the only thing that they have to sell. And so they pay recaptured depreciation on all of those assets that they're doing at ordinary income tax rates, both federal and state, if you have it. Mm. And, you know, they're giving up a lot to Uncle Sam, right, in what they're doing. Instead of an individual, perhaps, who was incorporated, right, and, and let's leave partnerships out of this for a second because sure. partnerships don't pay tax, right? right. The partners still pay individual tax rates. Um, but a corporation or an LLC if I hold that for at least 366 days, now I'm entitled to pay capital gains, you know, long-term capital gains tax rates, which are capped currently right now at the federal level at 20%, and then whatever your state rate is on that, right? So if I'm in a 35 or 37% tax bracket, and I can now reduce my tax bracket to 20% for the seller by simply selling my shares in the company, um, it's much cleaner. It also helps an individual much better from being a participant in managed care plans and third-party registrants and stuff because the entity itself, right, Acme Vision mm -hmm. Center, Inc., 
is the entity that's registered with Medicare or, you know, the vision plans or whoever it may be. So it, irrespective of who the employees are, the entity is the one that's getting paid and there's the least amount of disruption in the transition. So oftentimes, I just, for example, I had a, uh, was just recently working with a group uh, where the individual was a sole proprietor. And I said, you know, this is one of the things you want to consider is if you are willing to wait 366 days, you very well may be able to, you know, have a corporation or, you know, do something like this. Or if you want to put it off for five or six years for your sale and incorporate now, now your basis is going to be low enough to where you can benefit on some tax value on things. But it is important to be aware of those things. And many people don't think about that, right? Well, that's, that's what's surprising to me is, is what, what, per, I mean, I've never incorporated a business or I've never started a business where I didn't have a consultation with an attorney that kind of helps me through that process. But maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but what's your, what's your perspective? Why would somebody, what's the advantage to doing it the other way? Do they just think it's simpler or cleaner or less paperwork? You mean to be a, to be a sole proprietor? Correct. Um, so I think, again, let's separate people by their personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to spend the money with an attorney. Mm. You know, they'll say, oh, my God, the attorney's, you know, $400, $500 an hour. And, you know, if I spend time with them, that's a thousand bucks. That's two hours. And then they're going to charge me for writing the contract. That's another little bit. I don't, I'm not going to pay somebody 3000 bucks to do something. And, you know, it's a I mean, no pun intended. It's a very myopic view. But for other individuals who are very proactive in doing things, they say, that's not a cost, that's an investment. I'm going to recoup that 3000 or whatever I spend multiple times over by being able to plan well and be able to understand exactly what I'm doing and what the game plan is. Because how you structure your corporation is also very important, or your structure, your entity, I should say, right. would be very important. Um, but you'd be amazed on how many people I run into, uh, even in today's world, hmm. that don't even have an employment contract. Don't I mean that they'll go work for somebody on a handshake and a smile, and they don't have any contract in place. And I'll say, well, can you show me your employment agreement and this and this and this? I we don't have one. Um, and you know, well, why don't you have one? Well, because they promised this and this and this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, most of the time, those relationships are always fine until something goes south, and then you have nothing to refer to, right? right. Um, so right. again, it's just a mindset of the individual involved in it. Yeah, I would say that you know, the involvement of private equity, though, has brought, as you said earlier, a lot of things to the forefront where people are starting to think about things a little bit differently. They're becoming more familiar with terms that they've heard about, but really don't understand, you know, and I always try to make things, you know, when we look at EBITDA, I always just try to tell people, look at, we want to, we want to look at your true free cash flow in your practice, right? Before earnings, you know, interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, all of those types of things, but that's what we're going to start to look at. And my job is to go through your P&L and help uncover a lot of the stuff that Mm -hmm. you've been not hiding with, you know, bad intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, people do pay for personal expenses in their practice, right? I mean, oftentimes it's not unusual for me to see the cell phone bill for the whole family being paid right. for by the business, right? right? Or those trips to Costco for us office supplies, you know, right. also include, you know, whatever it may be, right? And my job is to go in <laughs> and decipher all of these types of things. And so you have to be very familiar with industry norms, 
right? I have to be able to understand exactly if I'm looking at a P&L and I, and I go through every single P&L personally and I enter all the information in and I highlight where a red flag is or where something is way out of whack. Um, you know, the typical point, for, there's two typical things that I see very, very commonly. Uh, number one is when somebody uh, owns their own real estate but are not paying themselves fair market rent, hmm. right? And doing things, or they're employing family members for which the family member is really not working, or they're paying for uh, them at a very low rate just to get them on the company's insurance or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those things are very, very common. And but you, you can know, take not- you take those out. You you basically are just going to remove those or figure out a way to remove them so that they're legitimately now an extra added benefit that you can make money on in the sale of your practice. Right. So what I do is there's a process of uh, what we call recasting expenses. So what that really means is what expenses are not going to be, would not be reasonably expected to be passed on to a new owner. What are discretionary expenses in the practice, right? Mm -hmm. So certain things are discretionary and those get added back into the net income um, that actually benefits the seller, right? If they, if they disclose those things properly. Other things just get factored to a norm. So if I see a practice that is paying themselves far, let's say they're paying themselves, uh, they're, they're paying 50 grand a year in rent, but really market rent should be $80,000 a year in rent. And I'm going to go ahead and subtract from net income an additional $30,000 right. per year to normalize that to what market rates would be. And so once we get to an end of really understanding true net income, and as as I said, I mean, here's the one thing I would tell all of your listeners, whether it's me doing your appraisal or any other firm that's out there that does it, the the, the process of going through your financials, the process of conducting the appraisal, the methodologies that the appraiser is using, it should be very transparent to both the buyer and the seller as that's being conducted. There's no magic methods. There is no special sauce that anybody should be using. It's just finance, right? It's just numbers. And everything that we do should be disclosed and very transparent to both parties on, on how it's being done. Um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a trend that I have seen from, I won't mention the firms sure. that are out there, but there's a couple of other firms. Now, the trend, instead of arriving at a value, is, is now just producing a range. They'll say, well, your practices were somewhere between 500,000 and 650,000. Hmm. And it's like, okay, <laughs> well, how does that really help me? But that's, I don't know, I don't know the reasoning behind that. So I can't really criticize it. Um, I'm just saying, I think it's an interesting trend that I've noticed. And, um, you know, do you I think it's do- because people think that, um, just off the top of my head, that people think that I might be able to sell to maybe a private equity firm for a higher amount than I might be able to sell to an individual. And so they want to get people an idea of what they might be able to fetch for that, uh, depending on who they'd sell it to. Um, I don't know so much because I haven't, I haven't found a private equity group, uh, yet that I've worked with that uses the same methodology that I use. Mm. Um, you know, what has been the industry standard for years, I think private equity groups, because they're really driven on just the asset itself, employ other methods. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, what I actually end up doing is I spend a lot of time with individual practitioners who are considering private equity. I spend time with them to 
evaluate whether that number makes sense or not. Um, I don't try to get in and dispute the private equity group's methodology because that doesn't really help further the process, right? But I can say, does this number make sense? So, you know, Chris, if a, you're, you're 39, you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I would tell you if, some, if a private equity group came in and said, we're going to offer you X for your practice, the very first thing that I would say to you is, let's take a look at what you're netting. Let's take a look at how much longer you would like to practice. And let's figure out whether selling that equity makes sense for you today or not, right? Irrespective of the price. Because the bottom line is, is that if you plan to practice a very short period of time, private equity can make very good sense for you, right? Or you may have other factors in your life that are going on where you say, mm-hmm. this is a perfect exit plan for me. And there may be not a non-financially based decision, right? Right. right. Um, but in, in many cases, if your practice runway that you have left is longer than three to four years, then you'll probably be paying yourself a higher net income and still owning the equity after that time period. So there is there are methodologies that we can walk people through hypotheticals to be able to help them analyze things. Now, one of the things you have to understand is that when a PE group does an analysis, they're also looking at how they can get the greatest ROI out of your practice, right? So their methodology may be one thing, but what they do is when they acquire a practice, they very often come in and make some material changes in operations or schedules or product mix that you're offering to your patients or pricing, you know, all of those types of things. So it's not unusual for a uh, individual who sells to private equity, finds himself now as an employee in a practice that has put a lot of different um, protocols into place to increase profitability, right? right? So what I always tell people is if you're going to do that, why not, why not take a look at making some of those changes yeah. on your own, right? Yeah. And increase your own profitability because, you know, when I look at a practice and it's very, um, if you use a, a debt service method at a standard interest rate of about 7% over a 10-year period of time, you know, you're getting about a seven to one return on your dollar. For every additional dollar of net income, you're getting a $7 increase in practice value. Yeah. So if you as an individual, you know, if you had a group come in and say, we want to offer you a million bucks today, and you say, wow, okay, hmm, well, I'm making 250 a year right now. And if I'm making 250 a year, I'll be making that million dollars, right, in four years. Four years. Yep. Hmm. Well, and I'll still own the equity, right? But if I could increase my net income by doing some of the things that they've talked about they'll be doing and seeing how much my net income increases, maybe I'll be making $300,000 a year and all of a sudden my payback period reduced to three and a third years, right? right? I mean, there's all sorts of ways to evaluate things and there's never a perfect or exact answer because everybody else's uh, intangible situation, right, is... um, different, right? I mean, people's life goals or family goals, all of those types of things are so different that, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what's the magic number? Well, how do I look at this? I say, you know, there there isn't anything, right? I mean, I think somebody would be lying to you if they said, look, it's just an equation, figure it out. I mean, I don't think that reflects reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, then I think that's a good transition point, John, into trying to move into the other topic of conversation I wanted to have you on because- I actually do think that some of the things we do with billing and coding can be very similar to an equation. You provide the exact right care in your words, and I I use them all the time, the exact right care for the exact right patient. 
for the very specific situation they're coming in for. You do all those things.